great to be here with you again. Um, it's actually a nice drive from Dunn to Wilmington. We were glad to take it again. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 10 um, or look at your handy bulletin where it's already printed for you. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. This is God's word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now as people who need to hear your life-giving word in our world, that need this, these words of life to come to life in our hearts because we live in a world that is filled with um, lesser things that vie for our allegiance. We fill with we live in a world that's filled with, with death. So we need you and your life-giving spirit to open our eyes this morning to the beauty of Jesus that we might chase after him, that we might be taken in our hearts by him. And we pray that you would do that this morning in our hearts in this place. In Christ's name, amen. So I believe that the scriptures are not only authoritative and trustworthy, but they're eminently uh, practical for us, that we can find in the scriptures guidance for our lives. Um, but I have to be honest with you, when I come to a passage like ours this morning, I struggle with that because I cannot tell you the last time that I, living in Dunn, North Carolina, have had to deal with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. The biggest question I have about meat is whether I want pulled pork or want barbecue chicken or actually fried chicken. Um, and usually the answer is both, um, if I'm honest. So I can't remember the last time that I had to deal with meat sacrifice to idols. And you're probably the same, most of you in here. So I was trying to think, what's the best way for us in eastern North Carolina to understand the ethical dilemma that was going on that Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians? So I want you to imagine this hypothetical with me. Internet access. It is impossible, just about impossible in the year of uh, 2019 to do anything professionally or in school 
or relationship-wise without some sort of access to the internet or to cellular service. Think about how often you look at social media, how often you check your email, how often you answer a phone call. It would be just about impossible to do anything in our society today without some kind of access to the internet. So I want you to imagine that tomorrow, Homeland Security says, well, we've got to crack down on stuff that's going on in the internet, and so everybody in America is going to get a, a user name and a password. And so you have to go through this portal. Every time you want to access the internet, every time you want to send an email, text, or phone call, you've got to access the portal this way, and you put in your unique username and your password, and there's this special thing you've got to do. And you, it's very easy. You just have to click a button, but you have to do this. Imagine you have to do this every time you want to enter the internet. You have to click a button that says, I believe that Donald Trump is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Now, nobody in here believes that. No matter what your political affiliation whatsoever, nobody in here believes that Donald Trump is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. But imagine that if you wanted to access the Internet, you had to click a button that said that. What would you do? I think some of us in here would say, no way, I could not do that. That is blasphemy. Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. I couldn't type that, even if it means I have to restructure my entire life, even if it means I've got to shut down my business and lose all these relationships. And Some of us in here would say, no, okay, I know that sentence is not true. I do not believe that whatsoever, but it's just words. I'm not even typing it. I'm clicking a button. I can do that. I don't believe it, but if I have to do that to use the Internet, I can do it. It's not ideal, but I can do it. So what would you do? Don't answer. But think about it. Now, for the Corinthian Christians, the issue of meat, sacrifice to idols, was very similar. And we'll get to that. So I want to walk through this passage this morning and understand that this something of this magnitude is what's at stake. And as we walk through the passage, I think we'll discover a number of things that can help us know what it means to follow Jesus in a world that isn't always black and white, in a world that has unexpected forks in the road. Which leads me to my first section, an unexpected fork in the road, in 20, verses 23 through 26. So to put our mindset in the right place, first century meat market, market was a vibrant, essential part of your world if you lived in the first century. But it was controlled by the government, by the Roman Empire. They controlled the meat market. Every piece of meat that you would buy at the meat market was somehow connected to the government in a tax kind of way, yes, but also in a provided kind of way. If you were going to sell meat, you had to be an approved seller. And it was more than USDA, like, checking to make sure it wasn't rancid meat. Um, and so when you went to the meat market, you were buying meat from an approved seller. And what that meant in the first century is that the vast majority of meat that you would buy in the meat market was meat that had been offered that morning in sacrifice to one of the accepted gods of the Roman Empire. And more often than not, in the first century, that meant it had been offered in sacrifice to Caesar himself, who was seen often as God. And so they would get up in the morning and they would have the meat and they would sacrifice it in this religious ceremony and then they would send it to the market. And that was the meat that was at offer at the grocery store. Now, for most of the first century, the uh, government would make provisions for the Jewish people. They knew that Jews 
were not okay with that. They were not okay. And so most of the time they would make provisions for that and they would offer kosher meat that had not been offered in sacrifice to idols or to Caesar. And Christians, most of the time, could buy this meat as well. But what had happened in Corinth before Paul had written this letter is that the government had started cracking down on the Jews who were causing problems in the empire and they stopped allowing the offering of this kosher meat. And so it just wasn't available anymore. And so Christians um, were now faced with this situation where they had no meat available to them at the market that was not offered in sacrifice, in religious ceremony, to a false god. And so how did they respond? Well, on the one side, you had people who said, well, it's my right to eat whatever I want. Anything's lawful. This meat is offered to a false god that I don't believe in. And so if I want to walk straight into the temple, not even just the meat market, and pick the meat up off the altar, I can do it because I do not believe in that false god. I'm free to do that. On the other hand, you had people who said, no way. Eating meat sacrificed to idols is participating in worshiping that idol. So the only faithful path for a Christian is to avoid meat altogether. So now Christians who had lived together, had walked together, who had been in uh, small groups, community groups together, and prayed together, are at odds. They've reached this unexpected, unexpected fork in the road, and they cannot agree what the path forward is. The two sides have reached an impasse. And they're pointing fingers at each other, and they're accusing each side, each side's accusing the other of not taking Jesus seriously. And they've argued and argued, and they've actually reached out to the Apostle Paul. They wrote him a letter asking him, what should we do? And what we have in 1 Corinthians is Paul responding to their request. They've argued, and they've argued, and they want to know, Paul, our Apostle, who is right? Who is right? And that leads me to our second section, which I'll call Adventures in Missing the Point. Adventures in Missing the Point. And we'll talk about each of these two groups. The first one is the group that I say misses the horizontal. They miss the horizontal. Look at verse 23 to what Paul says to the first group who says, I can eat whatever I want. He quotes them. He says, all things are lawful, or I have the right to do anything, you say. And what does he say? Not everything is beneficial. Say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Not everything is constructive. And then what does he say? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, or the good of others. The people in this first group have said, eating the meat sacrificed to idols is no big deal. And they've asserted their individual rights. They said, I have the right to do this. And they've said, we are strong in our faith because we can eat this meat without our consciences bothering us at all. But they've forgotten a crucial thing, and that's this, that questions about how to live in this world cannot be answered as if other people do not exist. Questions about how to live in this world cannot be answered as if no other people do not exist. We must consider the good of others, even if we have a coherent argument, even if we have our theological ducks in a row. Why do I say that? Because Paul tells this group, theologically, that they are right. 
that their argument is good. In chapter 8, before chapter 10, he agrees with their basic premise. An idol is nothing. There's only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. He even says this in chapter 8, verse 8. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So technically, they're right. This first group, they got their argument right on. But as he tells them in our passage, it's not enough to be right. If we do not consider the good of others, we miss the point entirely. Having the right knowledge about the ins and outs of the situation is not enough. Paul provides a test case. Look at verses 27 and 28. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But, but, so he mends what he just said. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat. The Corinthian Christians want a black and white answer to this ethical question. But Paul makes it clear that being right on paper is not enough. That the main issue at play here is the good of others. In other words, we can be completely right on the one hand and miss the point entirely, and in other words, be completely wrong at the same time. This is what Paul means when he says later on in 1 Corinthians 13, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, but I do not have love, then I am nothing. But there's another side to this issue which leads me to my next point, missing the vertical. This is the second group. They're missing the vertical. What does Paul say to this other group of people? The people who said that they could not, under any circumstances, eat any meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Look at verse 25. Anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Or the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This second group, most likely, were ethnic Jews. They were ethnically Jewish, and so they had lived their entire lives watching what they ate very closely, considering their diet as an expression of their commitment to God. And now, any ability for them to get meat that would not offend their religious and cultural sensibilities was cut off. To help us imagine it, imagine a lifetime vegan who's committed to the vegan cause for ethical reasons moving to a town where the only food option is McDonald's. In answer to that, Paul actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 24, which we had read for us earlier. In verse 26, he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, this wasn't Paul just referring to a memory verse that he had on hand. Psalm 24 was the blessing that Jews in the first century said over every meal. It was there, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. And Paul is telling those people who are in desperation about possibly doing the wrong thing by eating meat sacrificed to idols to remember that meat does not belong to an idol, it belongs to the Lord, and as food for them is, some, is something to be received with thankfulness. So much so that he can pronounce their daily blessing over this meat sacrificed to idols as easily as he could over kosher meat. 
To the first group, Paul had said that questions about Lot, how to live, cannot be answered as if other people do not exist, that they must consider the good of others. To the second group, he declares this, that questions about how to live cannot be answered as if the God revealed to us in the gospel does not exist. Questions about how to live have to consider the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. They have to consider his active love for us. This second group, if I'm honest, had answered this ethical dilemma in a way that makes sense to me. I would have fallen in this second group. Following Jesus in a world such as ours often presents us with circumstances that demand a radical choice, and if that means sacrifice, then so be it. We have to follow Jesus. But as they worked out this equation, they forgot, I say, a crucial factor, the factor of God's active, purposeful love for them. Imagine how difficult their day-to-day lives had become. They could no longer purchase kosher meat at the market. So now the basics of meal preparation to eat had become a detail to obsess over. Where's this meat from? What's the chain of custody? Imagine they're invited over to somebody else's house and they can't be recipients of hospitality because their first question when the plate is put in front of them is, wait, where did you get this from? This one issue had become a domineering distraction that had pulled them away from lives of freedom into the bondage of self-obsession, looking for every last detail of possible contamination from meat sacrificed to idols. I grew up in church. I didn't grow up in uh, the Presbyterian world. I grew up in a different um, tradition, a different branch of the Christian tree, And I had a Sunday school teacher once, and I don't know if he read a book or saw a movie or or what it was, but he got on this kick about us teenagers unintentionally being exposed to witchcraft, that we were just going to, like, by accident, stumble into being influenced by the dark world. And uh, I remember one Sunday morning for the Sunday school lesson, he gave us this list of items, and it had a, a, a number of things, and he asked us to look at this list and think through our lives to see if we had at any point had contact with any of these things. Now, it had a number of the, the most obvious things that, that usually pop up, like Ouija boards. Had we ever used a Ouija board? Had we ever watched The Exorcist or The Omen? And I love horror movies, that's an admission, and so I'd seen all those horror movies about six times. Um, and and it, it had, did you ever play Bloody Mary at a sleepover? Okay. Um, but then it had, it had one that was very confusing to me, and uh, I got really scared at this one. It had a magic eight ball. Magic, it, it's magic, get it? So his idea was that if we ever used a magic eight ball, then suddenly we had opened up our hearts to this dark world. And so uh, that was pretty terrifying to have a spiritual authority tell me that I had all, all these basically open doors to, to being... Uh, to being influenced by the devil. Um, But lost in the mix of this, lost in the mix of this long list was the love of Jesus. We were invited to take a hyper-focus on our lives, on the off chance and possibility that we may have been exposed to this thing or that thing, 
And all of that hyper-focus took our eyes squarely off of Jesus altogether and turned them back on ourselves. And this only led, I can tell you from experience, to fear. It only led to hiding. Just like being right is not enough, and being right apart from love is destructive, then being really committed and obsessively sacrificial apart from love is at best a distraction. We can be really committed, and I mean sacrificially committed, to knowing the right thing and doing the right thing and miss the point entirely. So what do we do? If being right and being really committed is not enough, how can we walk forward in this world that is not always black and white following Jesus? And I'd like to propose this is the way of love. We come to see the way of love in verse 31, and that's committed to two things, the glory of God and the good of others. Look what Paul says in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. First, the way of love is one that's committed to the glory of God. And specifically, it's committed to this, remembering who God is. He's not a distant tyrant sending burdensome dispatches from a foreign land. He's not an unsympathetic God who cannot understand the ins and outs of life in our world. I'm going to be preaching to myself here for a second, um, and I'm going to assume I'm also preaching to you. So uh, I think some of us in here live under the delusion that a life committed to glorifying God is one obsessed with following the rules. Yes, we believe that the gospel, and in the gospel, that Jesus has forgiven our sins. And yes, we maybe even can believe that God sees us as righteous and justified in his sight because of Jesus. But in the day-to-day, we think that a life glorifying to him is one that chalks up a bunch of points on the doing right column. In other words, we live our life in relation to God, forgetting who he is. We forget who he's revealed himself to be through Jesus Christ. And so our lives become about sin management. About managing our sin. But, Jesus did not set us free from being under the tyranny of sin. Not only that, he set us free from the tyranny of thinking that a life pleasing to him is about accumulating points on a scoreboard. In fact, the only way that we can live lives committed to the glory of God is by finding our motivation and by finding our power in what the gospel of Jesus says about us. And the gospel says this, that Jesus came into this world to seek and save those who were very far from him, the lost, not those who had really great records at glorifying him. That he freed us by his death from the penalty of sin and has freed us in his resurrection from the domineering power of sin. That Jesus has the final word about us, and that word from now and to eternity is grace. 
and that we are the worst of sinners who couldn't think our way to God or couldn't act our way, our way to God and couldn't work our way there or manipulate our way to God, but we had to be rescued. In the face of this good news, how in the world can we still act as if living a life glorifying to him is one that collects good deeds like dollars in a bank account. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that turning away from sin and repenting is not important. Sin is the worst thing in the world. Rebelling against God, oppression and violence against others, sin is the worst thing in the world, and we should flee from it. But what I am saying is this, all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf means that we can give up this scoreboard way of thinking and pursue him in joy and freedom. The Christian life is not about sin management. It's about us being swept up into the life of God. And the only way that this happens is that we are compelled by the love of God in Christ and we come to see Jesus as more beautiful than our sin. So the path of love means redefining the way we see ourselves in light of the intention of God to love us and show us the immeasurable riches of his grace, glorifying God. But it's also the way of love is committed to the good of others. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is not easy. That's why my sermon is titled The Frustrating, Time-Consuming, Inconvenient Way of Love. Because seeking the good of others means a lot of things, and it means this, that we have to know others, really know others. But let's consider the example of Jesus. Jesus didn't just simply pop up one day on earth as a full-grown man, walk into Jerusalem to be crucified, and rise three days later. If that was the only thing he came to do, then God could have finished that in a weekend. But Jesus came as a child, and he grew up. As Luke 2 says, he grew in wisdom and stature. As Hebrews 2 says, he was made like us in every way except for sin. That he faced temptation, but he did not give in to it. It says that he's acquainted with our grief, and he's acquainted with our sorrow. That he knows our limitedness and the frustration of living in this world, and that he is able to sympathize with our weakness and give us help in our time of need. The single, childless, homeless, poor Jesus of Nazareth knows our struggles, he knows our temptations, he knows our weaknesses. Yet, he identified with us so that we might be identified with him. Why would he do this? Why bother? It's not because Jesus had a lack the eternal Son of God did not have an us-sized hole in his heart that he needed to fill. In fact, one of the absolute wonders of the work of Jesus is that it happened at all. Because God was not compelled to launch this rescue mission of bringing us out of bondage to rebellion and violence and darkness. He was not compelled by any outside force to save us from our slavery to sin. But he did this in his freedom, forgetting his rights, he did this for our good, so that we might have life, so that we might flourish as his children. And in this passage, he invites us to be imitators of this. He calls us to the same kind of living for the good of others. And he empowers us 
by his Holy Spirit, the life-giving presence of God, to live this life. Not in obsessively watching our lives, not in obsessively watching the lives of others, not in using God as a means to an end, but in following him in the way of love that is, yes, frustrating, time-consuming, and inconvenient, but is also freeing and transformative. So, what do we do with this? What are some real-life, right-now kinds of ways that we can walk in the way of love? I have two. First, I say that we should develop what I'll call a gospel mindfulness. A gospel mindfulness. And what I mean by that is this. This week, pay attention to how you think. Pay attention to your internal monologue. This is weird, I know, but humor me. Think about how you think about yourself. How do you talk about yourself? How do you talk about others? How we think about ourselves is a big indicator of how we think about God. And I want to propose this and ask this. What if your internal monologue about who you are matched the things that are true about you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if the things you think and say about yourself matched what God says and thinks about you in Jesus? We might realize that we are far more sinful than we can ever imagine, but we might also realize that we are far more loved than we could ever dream. This can humbleness, humble us when we're prideful, and this can encourage us when we are awash in shame. And do the same with how you think about others and talk about others. Consider how the truth of what Jesus has accomplished transforms the way that you think and talk about other people. So develop a gospel mindfulness. The second is this, and this one's really easy. Reorient how we think about what we have. To quote the uh, great theologian John Calvin, he says this, All the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on the condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. What if we considered our whole lives and all that we have as resources given to us so that we can glorify God and love others? What if we thought that way about our money? What if we thought about that way with our time and our gifts and our talents? What if we thought that way about our votes? Now, this is counterintuitive. This will not happen automatically. Not in a place like in America in 2019. We live in a world where the most attractive voices that are gaining the most radical kind of uh, uh, commitment are white nationalism, our political affiliations. These are the things that are actually calling people to action. That's the world we live in in America in 2019. So this way of love is not going to happen automatically. We can't flip a switch and think it's going to go. This is something that wars against the sin and violence of our world. So this will not happen. We will not follow this way unless we are purposeful about it. And it will not happen if we try to do it in our own power. We must do it depending on the life-giving, empowering presence of God's Holy Spirit every step of the way. In conclusion this morning, I want to leave you with a warning and a word of encouragement. First, 
the warning. The truth is that our hearts can take this lesson from 1 Corinthians about the way of love and we can warp it. Our hearts are really good at this. We can take this message of joy and this invitation to walk in the way of love and we can turn it into a message of shame as we start to remember all the ways and times that we haven't taken this way. But the truth is, we cannot walk in this way of love with shame as our nourishment. Doing that is like trying to run a marathon with sewer water in our water bottles. Because the way of love is not only one that follows after Jesus. He's not only the why of the way of love, but he's also the how. He's the how we continue on this way, empowered by his spirit. Depending upon him, looking to him in all things, finding him as our friend, finding Jesus as our advocate, Jesus as our older brother, Jesus as our champion, seeing him as the author and finisher of our faith, the one who began this good work within us and will see it to completion. So that's the warning. Don't take this with shame. Take this with great joy because Jesus is not content to leave us where we are. And now the word of encouragement, which I'll actually borrow these words from a 19th century Scottish pastor named uh, Robert Murray McShane, which is a really great Scottish name. Robert Murray McShane. As you hear this quote, I invite you to let this truth lead us into worship in a minute. We're going to be singing in just a moment. He said this to his congregation, and I say this to you and to myself. Learn much of the Lord Jesus, for every look that you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. For every look you take inwardly, take ten at Jesus, because he is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the worst. Live much in the smiles of God. Live much in the smiles of God. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan, or the flesh. Live much in the smiles of God. Know that in the gospel, the Lord of all creation delights in you. Delights in you. He loves you with a love that you cannot comprehend. And in the end, brothers and sisters, that is enough. That is enough. Let's pray. Father, we are awed and words fail when we consider the love of Christ for us, this love that pursues and chases, this love that wins and redeems. And we thank you, God, that in the gospel we have been recipients of this love, not just at one point when we came to faith, but our whole lives long, and that you are committed to showing us the immeasurable riches of your grace in the coming ages, that this is what's true of us in Jesus. So, and so we ask in these moments, 
Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would move upon our hearts to chase after you, follow you, to be imitators of you in this way of love, glorifying you, God, and loving others. We know that we can't do it by ourselves. We know that we can't do it in our own power. And so we ask you to bind us together in the bond of the Spirit, the unity of peace in you, that we might be those who are known for our love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond in song.